Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. This morning we are uh, continuing in this topical series. If you're visiting with us for the first time, we are between book studies. Uh, we just finished up the book of Isaiah not that long ago, and uh, we're going to jump into 1 Peter in a few weeks. But in between that time, and uh, we are looking at um, some foundational things to our philosophy of ministry as a good refresher, as a good reminder for us. And uh, as we think, especially makes sense as we come to the beginning of a new year. Um, you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9 once again as we look back at this uh, foundational text that we unpacked in some detail last week. We are looking at uh, the Apostle Paul's exhortation here in verses 24 to 27. And we said Paul is using the backdrop of the Isthmian games which took place in the city of Corinth, the city he's writing, the church he's writing to. Uh, and he draws our attention in this text to the seriousness and the effort with which we are to, um, uh, uh, to approach the Christian life. He says in verse 24, run in such a way that you may win. This exhortation has been over the years and continues to be for our church a, a, a foundational text. It reminds us what God's people are meant to be, and what kind of church Scripture calls us to be as the body of Christ. And last week, if you were here, we looked specifically at the exhortation uh, itself, and we said Paul not only tells us to run to win, which is the kind of the theme uh, of, our, of our church and our philosophy of ministry, but he encourages us along the way to exercise discipline, self-discipline, which is a fruit of the Spirit, uh, self-control, to know our goal, uh, and we talked about a little bit about what that is, and to esteem the prize, the heavenly prize which God has given us, uh, which is himself in eternity. And it's in the spirit of knowing our goal then this morning that we turn our attention to, and we will do this again next couple Sundays as well, to uh, consider God's purposes for his church. If you take everything that the word of God uh, teaches the church to be, and everything the church is to prioritize, and you were to take all of that and put it in a big bucket and boil it all down, you could basically boil it down to a handful of things. And, uh, and those things are some variation of the following. God's purpose for his church can really be distilled down to three major headings. Uh, holding God high through his word, building up the body in love, and sowing gospel seed. So that's really what the church exists to do. We exist to worship God, we exist to work for God and to strengthen one another and to build one another up toward maturity, and we exist to sow gospel seeds such that others would hear the good news of the gospel and be um, received into the kingdom of God. So our job is, is really simple. Um, three, you know, our brains are almost like wired to remember things in groups of three. So that's why we have summarized our philosophy of ministry in this way. And so this Sunday, next Sunday, and the following Sunday, we're looking at each one of those individual things separately with the goal being that every one of us individually and the church collectively can run to win, that we would accomplish our purpose and goal as a church. And this morning, we are considering this first pillar in our in our philosophy of ministry, which is this, holding God high through his word. This is essential. And, um, and for that, I want you to turn with me uh, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 is, is kind of um, 
a text that we've looked at multiple times. In fact, we even used it by way of introduction last Sunday. But look at verse 4. Here Paul explains all that God has done for us. As, uh, as Paul explains all that God has done for us in his triunity. He speaks of the Father and the Son's work and the Spirit's work. But in verse 4, he says this, He chose us as believers in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. All of this, he said, he did to the praise of the glory of his grace. Again, verse 10. He says, through it with a, he speaks of the administration suitable, fitting to the fullness of times that Christ came, so the summing up of all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him also, Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of, the will, of his will. Why? To the end, or the, this is the goal, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And again, in verse 13 and 14, the Spirit has been given to us, and he says he has done that and sealed the work that God has done to us to the praise of his glory at the end of verse 14. This phrase is repeated three times in this short little text, and that tells us something important. It tells us that all things are done that God is doing are being done for the praise of his glory. The goal of history, and particularly the salvation of sinners in Christ's church, has, we said, as its overarching goal, the glory of God. And that glory is not only, to, uh, is not only seen, but it is reflected back to God in praise and honor and worship. The whole of creation, our lives individually, our lives collectively in the body of Christ— have as its ultimate purpose the glorious worship of God. And so that's where we begin this morning. That's where our philosophy of ministry begins as we think about this task. We were created, you and I were created to worship God, to worship him and to hold God high. That's what we mean. To worship God is to ascribe ultimate eternal worth to God and God alone. It's to recognize, to worship God is to recognize, but not just to see intellectually, but to celebrate and to rejoice in the triune God as the one and only sovereign, the one in whom we are totally dependent, the one on whom we are absolutely devoted. And of course, the only way we can know God in a saving way, as we learned this morning in Equipping Hour, beyond any shadow of a doubt, is through his word, through his revealed word, his divine revelation. And so this morning, as we think about running to win, and we think about God's threefold purpose for his church, the first essential thing is to hold God high through his word. Those things are important. And we can break this theme down into two parts. Running to win requires holding God high through his word individually, and running to win entails holding God high through his word corporately. So that's kind of our outline for this morning. It's two parts. There'll be some sub points in there. But we really want to understand running to win requires holding God high through his word individually. And it requires holding God high through his word corporately together. So I want to begin with uh, our hearts individually. We as a church hold God high through his word individually. In other words, uh, we do that uh, as individual Christians in relationship to God. 
And the most foundational thing, before we say anything more, is that you can only hold God high if you have been born again. (laughs) That's essential. We can't even begin to worship God in a way that pleases him, in a way that honors him. We cannot do that unless we have repented of our sin and placed our faith in Christ alone for forgiveness and salvation. There is no salvation apart from Christ. If we confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, Romans 10 says, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, only then will you be saved. So without Christ's righteousness gifted to us freely on on account of his mercy and his grace, on the basis of faith, it doesn't matter what we do, it doesn't matter how much we do it in his name, we will never earn God's favor, nor will we ever be able to approach him from, uh, and worship him from a sincere heart. So before we get, say anything else, the very first thing is you, you must be born again. But assuming that you belong to Christ this morning, as we often do in our churches, the Bible makes it clear that holding God high through his word individually requires being consecrated to God's purposes. We must be consecrated to his purposes. And for that um, kind of thought, just to dwell on that for a moment, look with me at Romans chapter 11. Romans 11 and verses uh, 33 and following. Uh, Paul says uh, in verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has became his counselor? Who is first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And then in verse 1, chapter 12, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. As Paul shifts from chapter 11 to chapter 12, he begins by making a plea. He's he's making a plea. This plea is a call for those who are reading the letter to move from understanding to action, to move from understanding to implementation. Paul has spent 11 chapters in Romans unpacking this bank vault of riches of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And then as we get to chapter 12, he, he, he shows us then what we must do in response to that. Paul is making a plea that we would present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices that are acceptable to God. What does it mean to be holy? Well, to be holy means to be, at its root, to be set apart. To be set apart entirely for God as he has revealed himself. As a culture, we, uh, especially in this country, we've, we've kind of lost a biblical understanding of what it means for something to be holy, something to be consecrated. I mean, as, with every successive generation, it seems as if less and less becomes set apart and more and more becomes common. Um, even in terms of how we dress, um, you know, 50 years ago, no one would think to go into the office wearing jeans. I mean, it was just, it's, just a, it's a violation of the dress code. Because why? Because work is a set-apart environment. It looks different than your home. It looks, bitter, looks different than when you're mowing your grass, right? The, the, just the, the, that idea of, of something being set apart for special use, that idea has gone. 
Um, but but we need to understand it because to understand that is to understand the word of God. For an object, for example, in scripture, like an altar or a utensil or a garment or even a time of the week, like the Sabbath is in the Old Testament, or a location to be consecrated to God meant that it is set apart specifically for divine purposes of worship. So the priests didn't use the, the bronze laver outside of the tabernacle to water their flocks, right? They didn't, they didn't water their flock. The Israelites didn't eat the bread of the presence inside the holy place because they wanted a snack, because they were hungry. They would never do that. In fact, it was such a, such a serious thing that, that David had even asked. The elders didn't use the tabernacle as a sunshade for picnics in the wilderness, right? The, the point is that because these things were holy to the Lord, they were set apart exclusively for the worship of God. So I think the only contemporary example I can think of, and I've used this many, many times, is um, like China that you eat off of, right? We have, many of us have either have it or maybe inherited from a previous generation, special dishes that we use just for holidays, right? We eat Thanksgiving dinner on our China. You know, we might have a special birthday celebration. We're going to break out the fine China. But we don't normally eat off of that every day. At least most of us don't. And that's kind of the, a contemporary example. It is set apart for special use. And so that's the idea of holy. That's the idea of, of holiness. So when Paul says here in, in Romans 12 that we are to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, the implications of that statement become mark, remarkably clear. Paul is, plea, is making a plea that each and every one of us would live our lives set apart entirely to God as an act of worship. He's asking for our lives, like that Old Testament sacrificial system, to be dedicated entirely to the worship of the Lord. That's why Paul goes on to say, this is your spiritual, at the end of verse 1, this is your spiritual service of worship. The literal translation in the original says, this is your reasonable service. And the word for service is a word that almost exclusively is used in the scriptures to refer to the details of worship that was carried out, that were carried out by the priests under the law. The priests facilitated this service, this worship of the individual by ridding the land of uncleanness by offering sacrifices. Paul, however, is amplifying this and expanding this comparison between our lives and the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament law. He says, in contrast to the dead animals sacrificed under the Old Covenant, you and I are to be living, breathing worshipers consecrated to God, set apart entirely for our Creator. Our lives are to be a sweet-smelling aroma to God, a never-ending expression of worship to the one who is worthy of all of our praise. That's why Paul says in, Romans, in uh, Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ. Or as he says to the, later on to the Corinthians, you do not know that your body is the temple of the Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own. He says you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. When I was a kid, we used to sing, uh, and we sing it here too occasionally, a hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. What? And, and the opening lines of one of those stanzas is, Take my life and let it be, holy, consecrated Lord to thee. 
This is how we are to be. Every, every aspect of our lives is to be set apart to God as a believer. Christ is to be at the center of your life in the workplace if you work outside the home. Christ is to be the center of your interactions with your family in your home. Christ is to be the center of your life as you spend time with friends. Christ is to rule supreme in those times where it's just you and your thoughts, minding your own business. Holding God high means every area of our lives is to be set apart to God. So we are to be consecrated to his purposes. But it's not just as we do that individually. We don't only consecrate ourselves to God's purposes, but we also are meant to live a life consistent with Scripture. And this ties back to our, to our statement earlier that we hold God high through his word. Look at verse 2 of Romans 12. He says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says, So that you may approve what is the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul says in verse 1 that our lives are to be living in holy sacrifices, that are to be well-pleasing to God. In verse 2, he says our lives must prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. How can we have confidence, you and I, how can we have confidence that our lives will, in fact, be well-pleasing to God? I mean, how can we have confidence that our lives will, by their actions, prove, you know, kind of, uh, demonstrate the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The only way we can do that consistently and with confidence is to live a life consistent with the revealed truth of Scripture. John 4, verse 23, Jesus says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So the truth matters. John 17, verse 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. This is how we are set apart to God's purposes. It is through a knowledge of his word. So all to say is you cannot worship God unless you know the truth. You cannot worship God rightly unless you know the truth. You have to know the word of God. And Paul lays out this prescription here in verse 2. Don't be conformed to the world, but rather be transformed through the renewing of your mind. In contrast to being pressed into the world's mold and influenced by the world's uh, priorities and the world's thinking, he says we are to be transformed, which has the idea of being remade from the inside out. This is how we live our lives. How do we do that? He says by the renewing of our minds. By the renewing of our minds. As the truth of Scripture washes over our minds again and again and again, As a believer, we are transformed. We are remade from the inside out. And over time, as the washing of the water of the word rolls over us, our actions and our attitudes begin to reflect God's will in ever-increasing measure. This is why why we, we must know the word of God and we must take it in. We begin to live lives consistent with Scripture, And in so doing, we hold God high and we worship him in spirit and in truth. So running to win means each one of us is holding God high through his word. And his word is essential. It means being consecrated to God's purposes, 
fully devoted and set apart to God, every area of our lives submitted to his will, and it means living a life consistent with Scripture as you renew your mind with the truth day by day. So my question to you is this, are you doing that? And if you are doing that, how are you doing that? You know, uh, as we take a step back and evaluate our time, it's often revealing what is pouring into our minds, where we spend our time, what we're looking at, what we're reading, what we're dwelling on, what we're taking in. If those things are not directly or indirectly taking us back to God's truth, then you are not being renewed in the spirit of your mind. You're being conformed to the spirit of the age. So I would just encourage you, if, if, you're, if you're one to spend hour upon hour upon hour throughout the week taking in things of the world, but just a, a, a small fraction of that time taking in the word of God, uh, you have to understand that you're being shaped and molded into the image of the world far, far more than you are the word of God and his truth. And so we as a, as a church must individually, each one of us have to answer for our time and redeem that time to be filled up with the, God, the truth of the word so that we may worship God rightly and hold him high. But that's as it relates to us individually. But we, we are not saved as individual Christians to go out and live our individual Christian lives in our own individual worlds. God saves us and he brings us together in the body of Christ in the church, which leads to the second main heading that we have this morning, which is to hold God, as a church, we hold God high through his word corporately. We do that as a church. Running to win requires holding God high through his word corporately. And if you've been a part of our church for any length of time, you know that we as a church seek to hold God high through his word when we come together on the Lord's Day. That's a priority for us. I believe that's a distinctive of our church, not the, uh, of any, uh, uh, we're certainly, it's distinctive of our church as opposed to all the people who would claim to be churches. Uh, We're not the only ones that do that, but we are certainly, I think, unique in the sense that we long to hold God high through his word in all that we do. It means that we look to scripture to define what we do as a church and when we gather as a church and all that goes on in the church. We're not looking to the world around us to inform those things. We're not looking to the the culture to sort of gain an understanding of uh, what we should be doing. We are not uh, searching the recesses of our imagination to dream up things to do. Um, When we come together, the word of God defines for us as a body what the church should be and to do. And we look to the scriptures for that. And we let scripture, we let the word of God give instruction and set the boundaries for that as as a church. Um, As we look to the New Testament especially, there are several aspects that are essential elements to corporate worship. These are things that should characterize the corporate gathering of believers on the Lord's Day. Uh, and, and believe it or not, not just any old thing is designed by God to be filtered through his church, through his church as they gather. Um, we are God's people, and he is the one that instructs us in what is right and good and necessary. For example, the time and place of worship is more or less defined for us in the Word of God. The habit of gathering together on the first day of the week, Sunday, springs out of the reality that the followers of Jesus saw fit 
themselves on the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the grave, to gather together. And each of the Gospels tell us explicitly that Jesus rose from the grave on the first day of the week, on Sunday. And so, as a result of being uh, Christ inaugurating the new covenant, in the example of Christ and the early church, the, tr- the, the church transitioned to meeting instead on the Sabbath to meeting on Sundays. The transition didn't happen immediately. It wasn't like the next week everybody got together on Sunday. But it also didn't take centuries to develop either. Uh, some Jews continued to observe the Sabbath who, who, were, who had come to Christ, and some even continued to be a part of the synagogue until they were probably pushed out. But eventually, in a matter of more like years, not decades, the practice of meeting on the first day of the week became commonplace amongst God's people. By, by the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians, which is one of the earlier letters, in the mid-50s AD, Paul assumes that believers are gathered together on Sundays to worship because he instructs them to take an offering each week when they come together, and he says they're to do that on the first day of the week, on the Lord's Day. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, that Luke records for us that Paul and his entourage were preaching, and he was preaching on Sunday. That's when he preached his midnight sermon, and the guy fell out the window and died, and, or maybe died, and we don't know, and came back to life and revived. Right? Why? Because God's people were gathered on the first day of the week. So the, from the earliest days of the church, believers began to gather together weekly for corporate worship, and they did so the beginning of the week. You say, well, who were a part of these weekly gatherings? Well, it was mostly believers. It was mostly believers. If you look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, uh, we see a, a record. It says, day by day, with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they, speaking of these new converts, were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Um, And so what we see here is they're mostly believers. Were there unbelievers in their midst? I think that's a fair assessment to say, yes, they were. But they did not make up the primary demographic of those assemblies. Um, Which I think just highlights an important point, is that corporate worship on Sundays is primarily for the edification of believers, not unbelievers. Um, We know... Every Lord's Day, there are people in our midst that don't know Christ. That's understandable. That's, that's fair. There are people that are young. They're just not, they haven't come to a saving knowledge of Christ, and perhaps they're so young they don't understand all that entails, so they're not believers. Some think they're believers, and they're not, because they have been self-deceived. And, and some are just searching and looking, and, and God and his providence brings them into the congregation and fellowship of a church on a Sunday and, uh, and, we want, and we welcome them. We're thankful that the Lord brings those people to us. We, we love to have guests. We especially love to have guests who are hungry and interested in the things of Christ. But the point is that the corporate gathering isn't structured for unbelievers. It's not meant to. Many seem to think today, at least in modern evangelical context, that the worship service is meant to cater to the preferences and the sensibilities of those who don't know Christ. When in reality, it just, should be just the opposite. Um, when we come together as a church, 
it should be different. It just should be different than what we experience in the world. And if, if, the, if the world wants the world, they can find a better version of the world out there. And they should go out there in, in search of it. When, they, when, the, the, when the world is looking for Christ and holiness and, and something distinct, they should come to Christ's church. At least that's how it ought to be. So, so we think about what the church does when we gather. I want us just to consider then the key aspects of corporate worship, key, key aspects, uh, elements, if you will, of corporate worship. The New Testament gives a lot of flexibility for how a church conducts its corporate worship services, but that freedom, we said, is not boundless. <laughs> Can't just do anything we want, anytime we want. There are certain components of corporate worship laid out in the New Testament that are essential they have become the core, the backbone that governs what takes place every Sunday when we come together. And a helpful distinction is to think in terms of elements, forms, and circumstances. Elements being the kind of big picture things that scripture sanctions. Uh, historically, the church has called this the regulative principle. In other words, if scripture commands it and explicitly lays it down in the New Testament, the church may do it. If it doesn't, we don't. So the elements of corporate worship, which is what we're going to look at here, are essential. The forms are not regulated by Scripture. They're left to wisdom. So whether we pray extemporaneously or whether we prepare a prayer on the Lord's Day, is, that's, that's a form of prayer, but, but how that's not really regulated by the Bible. Um, just like if you build a house, you have core components of a house. You have a kitchen, you have a bedroom, you have a bathroom, you have a basement, right? But your kitchen, you know, your kitchen is going to look a lot different than my kitchen in terms of what appliances you have in it, uh, how often and where you store certain things. Like, but the fact is it's still a kitchen. And so that's how forms kind of differentiate from elements. And then the circumstances are really just uh, are very uh, kind of one level more abstracted, and those are certainly not guided by Scripture or mandated by Scripture. Those are just things that are prudent. It makes sense to meet at 10.30 in the morning and not 10.30 at night, because it's just easier for most people to be here at 10.30 in the morning. Like That's a circumstance in which we conduct our worship. So, so all of those things are... are um, are, you know, they're sort of geared from Scripture, but the elements are what we're most concerned about. There are key aspects of, of corporate worship that are non-negotiable, and that's what we want to consider this morning. The first aspect of prayer, uh, of the corporate worship, is, uh, is prayer. Prayer. The Bible describes all different kinds of prayer, um, and you know, there are confession, there's confession, there's praise and thanksgiving. We can pray the scriptures, there are affirmations, intercessions, um, things like that. Um, and we do all of that with a spirit of watchfulness, a spirit of humility, a spirit of reverence and dependence. But these are different components. So confession focuses on our, our acknowledging our sin before the Lord. Supplication seeks to intercede for others and their needs. Affirmations, we tell God who God is and reflect back to him what he's, what he's revealed to us. Those kinds of things. There are prayers that, uh, that focus on different things. But prayer is absolutely vital to what we do on the Lord's Day when the church gathers. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, Luke says, there were a continually, the believers were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to 
prayer. That's what they did when they got together. They prayed. Acts 4 and verse 31 speaks of uh, when they had all prayed, the place where they gathered together was shaken, the believers, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Acts 12 and verse 12, when Peter was in, uh, released from prison supernaturally, uh, he went to the house of Mary and the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and they were praying. That's what they did. When the church gathered, the church prayed. And so we as a church, when we come together on the Lord's Day, our desire is to make prayer a central part of our worship. Um, we have um, calls to worship and invocations. An invocation is acknowledging God's presence and, and asking for divine assistance. Uh, we confess sin as a part of our corporate prayer time. We praise him and thank God in various ways at different times as we pray throughout the Lord's Day. There are affirmations of God's character. We also, we also intercede for others and, and, and ask the Lord to supply what is needed in terms of uh, healing those who are sick, strength, you know, this morning we prayed for the church to, uh, to grow in faith working through love. We want people to do that and be able to, to accomplish that. And then there are things like benedictions. Those are prayers that are given on behalf of the congregation, uh, over the congregation, asking for God's favor to carry them forward as the group departs. Like those are all aspects of prayer, and there's great freedom in in the order in which we do those things, the, the, the length of time we devote to those things. But they, the fact of the matter is that when we gather, the church prays. It's a unique time when everyone is able to lift their hearts together to God and align our hearts with his will. And that's, that's why we pray. And so that's why we hold forth prayer. Another aspect of corporate worship that's, that's non-negotiable is worship through music. Worship through music. Uh, music has an important function to play in worship. That said, it's important to remember that music is simply one component of worship. This is one of those little pet peeves of mine, just like the book of Revelation. Psalm is one psalm. Psalms is multiple psalms. People will say all the time, and I understand what they're saying. It's, I get it. They say, man, the worship was amazing this morning. And they're talking about what? The music. And I, there's a part of me that's like, no, no. Music is one part of worship. That's why we always clarify, I try and clarify, it's worship through music because there's worship through prayer, there's worship through giving, there's worship through preaching the word. So music is a component of worship. It's not the sum and substance of worship. Sometimes we can talk about music in that way mistakenly. There are two New Testament passages that stand out, I think, that highlight the role of music as a vehicle to giving praise to God. The first is Colossians 3, verse 16, where Paul says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then uh, again, in a somewhat parallel passage to uh, Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, Paul exhorts that church in Ephesus to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So the situation for both of these commands is a group setting. 
the people are together, God's people are worshiping, and, and so it's important for us to make music uh, a part of that. Worship through music isn't just a way to give glory to God, but it is, uh, it is also a ministry to other believers in the body. It's important for us to think about that because I think sometimes that gets lost on us. Uh, we're so fixated on um, our individual um, responsiveness to um, music and whether we like it or whether we're, you know, it's, it's, it it's meets our preferences or expectations or whatever, that we can forget that there's, a, there's an other's component to music and our participation. Um, and so when we gather together, we are ministering to one another in the body as we sing together, as we sing together. There's good corporate worship music and there's bad corporate worship music, right? And a lot of it, especially the stuff that's being cranked out in contemporary age, is not particularly good. You say, well, what makes good corporate worship good? Well, I'll give you some criteria since you asked. One, uh, it engages the mind. Good corporate worship music engages the mind. It should not be mindlessly repetitious. Now, there is, there is a place for repetition because repetition is the key to learning. But it should not be mindlessly repetitious. Secondly, it should accurately, accurately reflect and teach biblical truth. If, if, if corporate worship music isn't teaching biblical truth or if it's mistakenly representing the truth of God, then it's obviously not good. Second, uh, thirdly, it should be centered on God and not man as a whole. Now, we have a relationship to God, to God as man, as his creatures, and it's certainly you read the Psalms and you see the psalmist uh, singing. Uh, those are songs, right? The psalmist is speaking of his personal thoughts, his, his, his condition, his situation. But the focus always goes back to God and who he is. And so... Uh, a lot of contemporary Christian music is, is man dwelling on himself, talking and singing about his feelings and his thoughts, and it never goes back to God. And so I would say those are three kind of helpful um, criteria. Is, is this song engaging my mind? Is it accurately teaching biblical truth? Is it drawing and centering my heart on God more than myself? And so the reason those things are important is because, we, like we said earlier, the, the, the worship through music is a time of mutual ministry. It's a time when our individual voices proclaim truth, and then we, we reinforce that truth as we sing it together. So God-honoring music sung alongside other believers in the corporate gathering, it's like a, think of it like a rising tide. It, it, it should lift the affections and the mind of all who participate. And so my question to you this morning is, how, how do you sing? How, and I don't mean like, do you sing on key? I, I've heard some of you sing, and uh, it's okay. <laughs> I'm not a great singer. That's not what matters. But do you sing with conviction? Do, do you sing with your mind engaged in the truth of what's being sung? Are, are you, at the same time that you're thinking about those things, are you considering and simultaneously thinking to strengthen the faith of those around you? I mean, we're, we're to sing with full voices. 
you know? And, and, uh, and it doesn't matter if you're not um, a great vocalist. That doesn't matter. But we should sing with joy. We should sing with full voices, with full participation. And, and music is a vital part of corporate worship. Uh, but it's also not the only thing that's involved in corporate worship. Because there's another component to corporate worship that is given to us in the scriptures, and that is not only a lot, you know, we have, we have singing, we have prayer. A third aspect is giving. Giving is a part of corporate worship. If you look uh, at 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2, Paul instructs that church, as he had with other churches in the regions of Galatia, to take up a collection on a regular interval for the needs of the church. In this case, it was a special offering for the Jerusalem church. But the New Testament prioritizes the importance of generosity as an attitude, as a, as a, as a kind of orienting principle of our hearts and lives. Christ has been generous with, toward us, and therefore we should reflect that generosity to others. And whether we have a lot or a little in terms of material possessions, generosity is still to be the believer's prevailing attitude. And the New Testament gives us instruction for how to give. Um, all, all giving in the New Testament is free will giving, but he gives us principles for how we're to do that. Uh, one, we're to give regularly. We are to give regularly. It should not be haphazard. If you just randomly give whenever the Spirit moves you and then don't give for long stretches of time and then write one large check because you feel guilty and then don't do anything for three months or whatever it is your pattern is, that's not regular giving. Um, I think a helpful pattern is just to give when you're paid. <laughs> you get paid every two weeks, give every two weeks. You get paid once a month, give every month. So we give regularly. Paul says we are to do, Paul instructed the church in Corinth to give on the first day of the week. Uh, secondly, we're to give proportionally. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 3, he says the Corinthians were giving according to their means. Not according to their deficit, but according to their means. So that said, if, if God has prospered you, then, um, then our giving should be more generous than the one who hasn't been prospered nearly as much. So to whom much is given, much is required. Uh, second, thirdly, and this is essential, we are to give cheerfully. Not begrudgingly, not out of a sense of guilt, but out of a sense of joy that, wow, what a privilege to be able to give for the Lord's purposes and the Lord's work. Um, so the Lord loves, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7 says, a cheerful giver. And third, uh, fourthly, the, the principle that's laid for, out for us in 2 Corinthians 8 is that we are to give sacrificially. So what, what do we mean by Sacrificially. Let me, let me just put it in terms that are very practical. If your thinking in terms of giving is, once I have fully funded every other thing in my life that I want to do, I have something left over, and that's what I'm going to give to the church, that's not sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving means that you are giving up something that you would otherwise do to devote those resources elsewhere. So, so as we give, we are, we are called to give even beyond what we would normally give. So that means, that's why I've always encouraged people to, to live simply. 
Live below your means. If the Lord has prospered you at such a level, you don't have to live at that level. You can live below that level and use the surplus for generosity to meet the needs of others, to meet the needs of Christ's church. So, so we give regularly, proportionally, cheerfully, sacrificially. And that's going to look different for every individual and every household. But that's how we're to give. The gospel ministry doesn't happen at no cost. Right? It costs money to secure a place to meet. It costs money to have full-time pastoral staff. It costs money to host a website so that people can find us. It costs money to support missionaries. It costs money to, uh, to feed you guys sometimes when we get together. Um, it costs money to do the things we do. It costs money to meet the needs of other brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we have benevolence. Uh, because oftentimes we'll have, we'll have opportunities to meet needs. That said... I want to thank the Lord for the, and you all for the generosity that you've shown to the church. We're going to have a financial review here for last year. And once again, we were solidly ahead of our budget, which is a testimony to your generosity and even the generosity of others outside of our church who love what Christ is doing here and want to support that. And so I'm confident that as we continue to implement these principles, that we will have abundantly supplied what we need from Christ. So it's a commendation to this church. Sec, uh, fourthly, this is maybe the most critical component of our corporate worship, and that is the ministry of the Word of God. So there's prayer, there's, vo- there's music, there's giving. The ministry of the Word is essential to the life of the church and our gathering together. The ministry of the Word becomes the time that Jesus Christ, the head of his church, speaks to his body through his Word. The risen Christ, is, he's gone back to heaven, right? And uh, he will return. The apostles have long since gone to be with Christ, but the fullness of divine revelation has been recorded and preserved to us on the pages of Scripture. We have the word of God. And Acts 2 verse 42 says that the believers, when they gathered together, came together, among other things, to hear the apostles' teaching. When the church gathered Uh, Paul uh, writes, he instructs uh, Timothy as a disciple to be faithful in the public reading of scripture, exhortation, and teaching. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, Paul reminds us there to relentlessly preach the word in season and out of season. The word of God then is the primary means by which believers in Christ are going to be transformed into the image of Christ. Right? Sanctify them in your truth, Lord. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. And so the word of God is front and center in the corporate gathering. We have uh, all week long are being bombarded with worldly wisdom and worldly influence. When we come together, we want to hear from God. We want to hear from his word. The word of God is the sword of the spirit, and we must wield it, destroying every sinful speculation and every lofty thing that is raised up against the true knowledge of God. This is the ministry that we have week by week. It's why we read the scriptures together as a church. It's why we preach the word. It's why when we have various ministry uh, get, uh, opportunities throughout the week, we are front, uh, putting the word of God first. In the children's worship time right now over there, 
They're probably doing crafts now. But before that, they were teaching them the word of God. You can see the content of the lesson on the back of your bulletin. Uh, every, even our, our ministry of fellowship, when it's at its, at its greatest, is a ministry of the word together as we pray for and encourage one another in the things of the Lord. So preaching is essential. Preaching is essential. It occupies in our church the greatest time of our corporate gatherings. So to neglect that or to minimize that is, to, is essentially to put a bag over the, the head of the church and to suffocate it. And so unfortunately, sadly, many churches do that. They do not, the preaching of the word is incidental to what happens rather than front and center. Another component, a fifth component of corporate worship is the ordinance of baptism. The ordinance of baptism. Baptism is an opportunity for those who have repented of their sin and committed their lives to Christ to publicly identify themselves as Christ's followers. And the church then publicly identifies that individual with them as a church. It's a time to declare tangibly what has taken place in that individual heart spiritually. It's a commanded reality, and so baptism in the simplest sense is an act of obedience, but it's more than that in that it's a way that a believer says to all, I belong to Jesus Christ. And it's also the way that the church says back to that believer, we also concur. So it's both. And think of it like a, a wedding ring. The wedding ring is a way for me to publicly identify to the world that I'm married to my wife. Right? And then legally married to my wife. But also think about the example of, we used this before, of a passport. A passport is a way for the government of a sovereign nation to affirm a person's true citizenship, that they possess all the rights and privileges that are associated with that citizenship. Baptism is both. Baptism is the individual's public pledge of fidelity to Christ. It is also the church's issuing a passport, as it were, to one of those citizens of Christ's heavenly kingdom, saying, as far as we can tell, this is one who belongs to him. And so if you have not been baptized as a believer in Christ, then, then you must do that. That's what the scriptures command. You, you don't just follow the command to check a box, but it's an opportunity to rejoice. Rejoice in what God has done and to tell the world that you have been bought with a price. And so baptism is an essential part of our corporate gatherings. Not every week, unfortunately. Wish it was. But often it is. There's a, six, a sixth component or element to corporate worship that's essential, and that is the Lord's table. This is the second ordinance, so he's, God's given two ordinances to his church, baptism and the Lord's table, Lord's table being the, the second. It was established by Christ at the final Passover that took place in the upper room before his death and resurrection. And the Lord's table is a time when all who have put their faith in Christ celebrate his death and resurrection for their sin. And it's repeated on a regular interval. It, as, we, as, we, as we take the visible bread and the visible cup, we're reminded of Christ's sacrifice. It points to his body and his blood shed for our sins. It, prom, it, it proclaims the message of the gospel. 
when we participate in the Lord's table, it's a time for us to look with anticipation to Christ's return. It's a time of reflection and repentance as we renew our commitment to Christ. Through the bread that we eat and the cup that we drink, we are able to enjoy a real spirit-wrought fellowship with Christ and his people as one body, partaking of one bread. And it's a privilege to be able to do that. It's a time where God's people renew their commitment to Christ and his body to strengthen faith and to remember what Christ has done for us. So, so these essential components of corporate worship are given to us in the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament. And these are the things that the church should be doing. Now, how they work out the forms of those things and the circumstances of those things are going to vary from church to church. And we're not, um, some are maybe wiser than others, but we're not uh, to cast judgment upon a church that maybe doesn't pray as much as our church or a church that doesn't, uh, uh, that puts giving at the end of the service instead of the middle of the service or those, those things don't matter. Um, that's up to the wisdom of each church and the leadership, and sometimes it's, it's some of it's driven by historical precedent and tradition. But the essentials are this, prayer, music, uh, worship through music, giving, minist- the ministry of the word, baptism in the Lord's table. That's what the church is to be doing. So, drama, not so much, right? Um, entertainment, movies, things like that, whatever things that churches pump into their corporate worship services, they have no part. They should have no part in the worship service because those things don't, they are not sanctioned by the word of God, nor do they add to the value of the church's participation. Uh, C.J. Mahaney tells a story in one of his little booklets. It says, on Monday, Alice bought a parrot It didn't talk, so the next day she went back to the pet store. The person responded, he needs a ladder. So she bought a ladder. Another day passed, and the parrot still didn't say a word. How about a swing, the clerk suggested. So Alice bought a a swing. The next day after that, a mirror. The following day, a miniature plastic tree. The day after that, a shiny parrot toy. On Sunday morning, Alice was standing outside the pet store when it opened. She had the parrot cage in her hand. In tears in her eyes, her parrot was dead. Did it ever say a word, the store owner asked? Yes, Alice said through her sobs. Right before he died, he looked at me and asked, don't they sell any food at that pet store? (laughs) There are a lot of things you can occupy a Christian's life, right? There's no shortage of ways we can fill up our time. Just like all those parrot cage amenities couldn't make up for an absence of parrot food, In the same way, a lot of Christian activities can't make up for the centrality of holding God high through his word. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When we as individuals worship other things, when we as a church worship and privilege other things, our souls languish and starve like that parrot. And our churches languish and starve. But running to win means holding God high through his word in each and every one of our lives, individually and collectively together as Christ's church. 
This is what we do. This is our focus. And we must let the Lord of the church speak through his word so that we might know him, that we might obey him, and at the end of the day, we would accomplish our purpose, which is to glorify him in all things. Because he alone is worth it. Let's pray. Father, there is uh, no shortage of instruction given to us in the New Testament for what your church is to be and to do. And we are so thankful as a church that you take our imperfect worship and in Christ's mercy and grace, you, it is pleasing in your sight, which is just incredible to think about because even our best moments in corporate worship or even individually as we live our lives are shot through with sin and failure and weakness. And yet we can still please you. We can still glorify you. We can still honor you as your people. So Lord, we, we long to be able to do that more effectively. We long to run to win that we might hold you high through your word. Teach, instruct, strengthen us, Lord, to do that better for your name's sake. And we thank you for the goodness that you've shown us through the years. Lord, help us to do these things for your honor. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.